two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Low Orbits, the podcast mini-sode in which two writers watch some TV. Welcome to another edition of Low Orbits. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Wrightsey. This week, we're going to take a look at the Outer Limits episode, The Invisible Enemy. This is the infamous one that many of you may remember, the land sharks on Mars, the sharks that travel around under the sand attacking astronauts that uh, land there to explore. I would argue that these were more like dragons. They were, yeah, they were more like, but they had a fin like a shark. So you could see them, you know, coming through the sand with their fins sticking up. That's why people think of it as the the sand sharks of Mars. Which is always a nice touch on a monster to have just part of it seen for a while. Right. And and the funny thing is, we just watched Meg 2. Yes, and yes. which was full of fins slicing through the water menacingly, so it was kind of a it was kind of an odd coincidence that we watched these two in close combination. So basically, the premise of the story is it begins with the first expedition to Mars. They land, and mysteriously, all the crew members are killed, and we see nothing. Yeah, we just hear like ah. Yeah, classic. Go behind a rock and scream. Hey, a flower. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And so six months later, they send another uh, ship that's allegedly more equipped or more disciplined, which turns out to be bullshit, (laughs) led by the indomitable Adam West as the captain. So the second expedition lands, and the allegedly more disciplined and ready and wary crew immediately starts to fuck up right off the bat. Going around behind rocks and, and going, hey, I found this really interesting thing, Captain. I'm going to dig it out of the sand. And Cap's like, get out from behind that rock. What are you doing? I can't see you. Get up. And then, ah, he gets killed behind a rock. So they repeat the exact same mistakes that the previous crew did. And then there's the other guy who, when that happens, he grabs a space gun and runs out into the Martian atmosphere to try to find the monster. And so like zero discipline. Adam West is a shitty captain because there's absolutely zero discipline on this ship. Even though they had six months to prepare for this, the minute they land on Mars, it all just falls apart. One thing I definitely noticed at the time was you see like the World War II Army squad. You know, right. Did we have a guy from Brooklyn? In the first one, no, we didn't. Yeah, on the, the second ship, there was the sergeant from Brooklyn named Capazetti or something like that. And I'm sure he was going to go home and get his shield and become a cab driver. <laughs> I think it's more than a trope. It's the idea of all these guys with this World War II experience, and they're using it in their writing. Well, no, it's not that. You're close. It's all these World War II movies going all the way back to Sergeant York, where you have the diverse squad. So he had all these propaganda movies in World War II where there was the stalwart hero like John Wayne, you know, as the sergeant or the captain or whatever. And then there was a crew of uh, one guy might be Cuban, another guy is Jewish, another guy is from Brooklyn, another guy's a Native American. Then there's maybe occasionally, you know, certainly not in the 40s, occasionally there might be a black guy in there. They're all grizzled. Except for the young guy. Oh, there's, there's always a dumb young guy, and they're usually from, like, Nebraska or Wisconsin or something. 
And they die in William Bendix's arms. Yeah. <laughs> Gee whiz, Captain. Yeah, they always talk like that. Gee whiz, Captain. I never, I never knew that before. Yeah, and, then, and then the grizzled William Bendix character, you know, would be like, hey, shut up, kid. And as he's dying, it's like, tell my girl I loved her. <laughs> tell, tell Debbie that I, I, I was going to give her a promise ring. <laughs> so anyway, they conformed to that stereotype. It's, so for background, this was one of my absolute favorite episodes when I was a kid. It was up there for me, too. I mean, just the whole idea of monsters in the sand killing you know, astronauts was so cool. But having seen it as a grown adult and a writer, it's like, oh, man, there's just a lot of bad dialogue in this. All of the actors in this episode were like, they had their acting button turned up to 11. Oh, the one guy, I can't remember who he was, who ended up saving West in the end. The other vaguely Italian-looking dude. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was shouting, but he was... No, there was shouting. He was acting to the back row the entire time. absolutely. You're not paying attention to me! And going back to the headquarters, you know, with the colonel and the captain, you know, clutching the microphone and yelling into the microphone, we can't fail this time. We can't. We just can't. We'll doom the whole program. Maybe man was not meant to explore Mars. You know, that sort of crap. You know, I thought Ted Knight was... Yeah, Ted Knight was the Senate investigator or something. I thought he was unusually quiet during it. I wondered if they couldn't afford to give him more lines. It's like everybody in this show had their acting button turned up to 11, and Ted Knight, of all people, had his turned down to 7. Yeah. Which, you know, good for him. You know, we don't think of him as being a serious actor, but he actually, you know, some of these old TV shows, he was. Yes, yes, indeed. Gentlemen. So, obviously, they, I think they kill one of the monsters, but then right after that, like, six more appear. Yeah. And then they have to blast off and leave. You know, that's the thing I love about Outer Limits. They don't triumph over the monsters. They blast off and retreat go back to Earth and say, well, I guess we're not going to be exploring Mars <laughs> <laughs> unless we bring a battalion of Marines with us armed with bazookas and flamethrowers. I do think they showed the monster too much. But again, it wasn't that bad. It could have been a lot worse. Well, that's the thing about Outer Limits. For a modern audience, you would watch it and say, oh, these monster makeups, these special effects are really cheesy. But for the day, they were adequate. Yeah. They weren't bad. I mean, I could give you a list of 10 movies from that era, science fiction movies that had atrocious makeup and special effects. Uh, Including one that had none because the aliens were invisible. Right. And I could even say you could look at some episodes of Lost in Space and uh, Voyage of the the Sea that shared monster makeups. Oh, yeah. One would appear one week and then it would be on the Voyage of the the Sea the next week. Some of those were... Like a guy covered in cellophane strips. Kind of a ghillie suit. Yeah, like a ghillie suit made of bread wrappers. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. It's like, that's good enough. But, you know, yeah. Is it one that I would rank among the best of the Outer Limits episodes? No. It's one that is memorable, and I think a lot of people like me have fondness for from when they saw it when they were young. It's got a great premise. Yes, it has some very memorable details, I think, to a kid. Right. I mean, the premise overall is just fantastic for a little kid. I vaguely remember seeing it as kind of cool, 
that they're at the wreckage site of the first one and they're investigating and there are pieces of it here and there. Yeah. And one piece had blood on it, you know, it was an important clue. Yeah. So yeah, it's a mid-level Outer Limits episode, but certainly if you loved it when you were a kid, I would recommend going back and rewatching it to see how, how, how it didn't quite match up to your memories like, like it did with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're a kid, you have fewer filters, so you you let a lot get past you, or you don't notice it. And you know, not to make too academic a point here, is when you and I saw the Outer Limits, we had no control over what video was available for us to watch. Right. So when Outer Limits came on, it was if you liked the show, it was special. It was an event. It was great because. This thing you like is available here and now. We couldn't pause it, see it later, stream it. It was when they made it available and nothing else. That's a good point because two things. The first thing is my personal experience seeing The Outer Limits was in reruns. It always aired like 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, like late Saturday night or maybe Friday night. So it was always late at night. My parents were in bed. I'm downstairs in the living room by myself and I could turn all the lights off and have that perfect atmosphere to watch The Outer Limits. So that colored my experience of it. You were seeing something for the first time that you'd never seen before. And maybe I might have heard about this episode. I think that might have been the case here where I was reading a magazine or, you know, somewhere somebody said, oh, this Outer Limits episode with the Sand Sharks is really cool. So I was probably looking forward to this one, which probably colored my opinion. But the other thing is, back in those days, it was pre-video. So you only got to see a movie or a TV show, a TV show on reruns, when it appeared on TV. Yeah. And it might be once, and then it wouldn't be on TV again for two years. You know, so you had your one chance to see something. And because of that, you didn't have a huge personal library of TV shows and movies that you had watched. Now, maybe there was a couple TV shows that you never missed an episode. For like me, when I was a kid, Batman and Lost in Space, I never missed an episode of that show. However, if you did miss an episode... And uh, seasons were something like 30 episodes a year right. then. Yeah. You had to wait till summer reruns. Yeah. There's maybe a one in three chance that it would show in summer. Otherwise, yeah. it would be years before you saw so, it. So like today, you and I have a database of thousands and thousands of movies and TV shows that we've consumed. So we've got them and we've got a measuring stick. So like the special effects and outer limits, we have something to compare it to. We can compare it to rotten science fiction movies of the 50s that had really bad special effects but then we can also compare it to more modern special effects even before cgi that were better yeah so that's the thing about watching something from long ago which is why i always stress that you need to try to watch something with context yeah yeah to say okay this monster sand shark looks a little cheesy but you got to consider what other tv show had special effects in those days. They probably weren't any better. A few years later, there was plenty of semi-cheesy effects on Star Trek, which is more of a state-of-the-art type show. I'm thinking it's around 1910, and they go to the theater and they see an old movie. They see train running towards camera, and their grandfather's like, oh, you're going to love this. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, well, that's it for another Low Orbits. And please follow us on your favorite podcasting outlet and like this episode if you enjoyed it. It really helps us. Tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the stars.